You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. All right. Um, a couple of... Um, well, let me pray, and then we'll chat for a second. Uh, Lord, in your mercies, you have fed us this morning in the Word and in the, and in the Eucharist, and we're so grateful. You, you remind us about who we are and who you are, and you let us feast on you and your grace, and we're, and we're, we're thankful. Lord, in this class today, I pray that you open the heart and the mind of the teacher and, and those who are here to listen and help us to come to some understanding of the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, today is the last day of this class, so we're ending ending a series. Um, how coherent the series has been, I'm glad, I'm not sure. Um, but today's the last day of the series. I, I am starting another, we'll start another series after Easter, beginning April, uh, what, what will that be, the 8th, I believe. Um, and it'll be a, like a seven-week series. I'd like to do um, a book of the Bible. Um, but if there's something that, send, send me some, if you have thoughts or um, desires, um, well, send, well, send me some ideas if you don't mind. I'd like to just we've done Philippians, we've uh, we've done Galatians, we've done Colossians in here, um, Exodus, I believe, Genesis. So we've covered some ground. Uh, but if there's a book of the Bible that you say I, w- I wouldn't mind spending some quality time in this one, um, I, any book but Revelation, I'm op- I'm open to it. Um, I'm just. Uh, you know, Calvin wrote commentaries in every book of the Bible except for one. You know, there was a revelation. Uh, so anyway, if you have any um, any ideas, that be that would be that'd be great. And if you want to do the Book of Revelation, I, I, I guess I'd be open to that. I'll take a preterist view, so you might not like that, but we'll, we can talk about that later. Okay. Um, and today's our last day in the Creed, um, and I want to read to you. I took a picture of it this morning in church, so I don't have to bring the book. Um, let me read to you the last article, and we'll talk about. Um, uh, get into the, the discussion. I, I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets. And I acknowledge one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We're not going to cover all this today, it's a lot. Um, I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world uh, to come. A central verse in this final article of the Creed, a central verse that has shaped liturgical reflection from, it, from, its, from the church's inception is the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So here you have this claim at the end of Matthew's Gospel that identifies the name of God. This is significant because if you, and you've spent time in the Bible and you've heard it in this class, um, the, the theology of the name of God is central to the Bible's own presentation from beginning to end. Who is God and how is God to be named? How do we name Him? 
Um, the encounter between Moses and a lot and, and God at the burning bush in Exodus three centers around that question. Um, when I go to them and they ask me, what is your name? What is the name of the God who sent me? What shall I tell them? And God says, you tell them I am who I am has sent you, which is related to this tetragrammaton, the four letters, which we often gloss as either Jehovah or Yahweh. It's, it's a name that we do not know how to pronounce. If you'll think back, sort of backwards into the book of Genesis, um, and you come to the book of Genesis and you find Jacob wrestling with God at the river Jabbok, Jacob asks God the same question. What is your name? Do you remember that? And God won't answer him. God says, I'm not going to give you an answer to that, to that question. And they move on. It's as if, if you look like from, from a Goodyear's blimp's perspective on the Pentateuch, it's as if God is saying to Jacob, Jacob, the answer to that question is not for your moment in the history of redemption. That's an answer that I, that's a question and an answer that needs to take place between me and Moses. And that's not the time yet. That time has to do with the Exodus. So we see the name of God in the Old Testament, especially linked uh, to that Exodus event, that redemptive event, that paradigmatic redemptive event in the book of Exodus. Um, that defines and shapes all of Israel's memory and future hope. And it's quite important. What Israel remembers about God's identity with her, God's love for her, and the future hope that Israel has that God will do it again. And then when we get to the New Testament, we find the name of Jesus Christ being understood as inexorably linked to the identity of that self-same God who revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. Uh, John 17, the high priestly prayer, the very last verse of the high priestly prayer in John 17 is, I have made your name known to them and I will yet make it known to them again. So here you have at the end of John 17, this name theology making itself present again. Jesus saying, I'm going to make your name known. Which again, we hear that and we think, well, that, that seems like something that everyone would already know. I mean, people would know what the name of God is. And the answer to that is, yes, they did. But it's the significance of the redemptive and saving character of that name that they did not know in its fullness. And Jesus, as we move into John 18, which is the, the narrative of the Passion, Jesus is going to reveal the name of God in its fullness as it's linked to that paradigmatic moment. Robert Jensen, a theologian who actually passed away last year, Robert Jensen uh, defines the kind of biblical narrative of redemption this way. The God of the Bible is the God who raised Israel from the dead in the Old Testament, and he raised Jesus from the dead in the New Testament. That's a way of understanding the paradigmatic relationship between the naming of God. And here we have, at the end of Matthew's Gospel, an identification of the name of God by which people are baptized as the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. So when we look at our final article here on the Holy Spirit, and I have to say, and when we start talking about the Holy Spirit, um, this, this is where people start to get edgy. I, I get, like, I've, I've been nervous about today a little bit, thinking about it. Um, because we, we'll talk about the Father and the Son and the sharing of the same being between the two and the relating of the two. And we'll talk about the fact that we don't know the Father apart from the Son. But once you start getting the Holy Spirit uh, language and conversation, all of a sudden 
know, people have invested commitments theologically and spiritually to their understanding of the Spirit and how the Spirit functions in the life of the church and in their own individual life. So I realize that there are some, there's a minefield that we're stepping in. And I, and if I, and I don't mean to step on anyone's toes. I'm not, that's not my goal today. Um, but I realize there might be some press back on the way in which I'm going to present this. Uh, so I just sort of lay that out. So before we get to that, this language here in the third article, the Holy Spirit, the giver of life. Um, that's, that's important. It helps us understand that this, the, the, the Holy Spirit, Old Testament, Ruach, uh, New Testament, Pneuma, these are the terms that are used for the very, the breath of God, the Spirit of God, that we understand, and this is very important, that we understand as a divine agent of God who is God and is sent by God. Alright, now that's Trinitarian logic. He is God, and he's sent by God. It's the Spirit of God in Genesis chapter 1 that's hovering over the face of the deep and bringing order to chaos. It's the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of God that we read in books like Job. I'm not going to go to all this because of our time, but Job 34, Psalm 104. It's the Spirit of God who brings life from the outside. It's the Spirit of God that enters into the, the, the formless clay of Adam and Eve that then brings animation and life to that which was dead. So when we think about the Spirit as the giver of life, we're really leaning into a very important um, understanding of our views of salvation. How is it that people are redeemed? And to use the language that I've... Again, I'm coming from my own theological tradition here, which is, I think, the kind of tradition that is espoused in our church. Um, when we think about, um, if I can use a Billy Graham language, uh, being saved, right? Getting saved. How, how does that happen? And the answer to that, both from a creedal and a biblical perspective, is that happens because of the regenerative life-giving work of the Holy Spirit. And, and let, let me press it even a little bit further. And it happens no other way. We are locked in our humanity by the reality and the curse of the fall. And, and the fact that all humanity participates in Adam, all of us do, um, I, someone should write a hymn on this. Uh, it wouldn't go very well. But you know, one, one of my favorite Good Friday hymns is, uh, Were You There When We Crucified Our Lord? I think we sing that every Good Friday here at the Advent. And, and I think we're kneeling when we sing it, if I, my memory serves me correctly. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? And, and you know, that's a rhetorical question, I think, in that hymn that's meant to be answered positively because that's, that's a biblical understanding of memory and participation. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Yes, we were. In ways that we don't even know, our real identity and personhood was there when they crucified my Lord and when he rose from the dead. That's, that's who I am. So that's a, that hymn that we sing on Good Friday in a, in, in a month and a half or so, that's a participatory hymn. Not just a recollection hymn, oh yeah, we remember that happened, but we remember that happened and we know that in a very real way that goes beyond the confines of our own human thinking, but in a very real way, we were present there when that happened. But here's one, I don't know, I don't think anyone's ever written this, but were you there when Adam bit the fruit? You know, maybe someone could write that, right? Um, yes, you were. 
Right? I mean, I think that's the, that's the language that we find for, with Paul in Romans chapter 5. We are all in Adam. We, we are all participants. Whatever you think about Adam and Eve and how all that thing shook down in the garden, the answer is, I think theologically, every one of us would have taken the bite. Every one of us would have. We all participate in that original sin. And that original sin is a reality that's passed on through our children and our grandchildren and on and on it goes. And because that's true, we believe that sin's impact on humanity is total. Um, it, it's, it's, and this is, this is the part that gets, I think, theologically controversial for some. And I realize that there are other theological camps that would talk about this in different ways. So I want to acknowledge that. But my view, and I think it's the view that the Bible teaches, is that the impact of the fall and sin has had an impact on the way in which we think, on the way in which we feel, and even on the, in the ways in which we choose. As one of my colleagues would say, our choosers are broken, right? Because of the fall's impact on the sum total of our, of our humanity. And because that's the case, because we are incapable of healing ourselves. Or if I can borrow the language of our liturgy, which I think is such a wonderful turn of phrase, even though it smacks us in the face every week, there is no health in us. What a great turn of phrase. Which is that we don't have health in us. See, the Spirit as the giver of life is that which gives life from outside of ourselves. It's not a turning in ourselves to find some sort of flicker of spiritual life that needs to be fanned into flamed existence. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the Spirit is an agent outside of ourselves that comes to ourselves in our dead reality and gives us life. And the classic language of this is regeneration. Now, the people, different theological camps are going to wrestle with this. I'm just going to lay my own cards out on the table and, and send me an email if, if this bothers you or, or you can ask now. And I also believe that regeneration, the Spirit awakening us to life, precedes. Now, this is again logical, not necessarily temporal. This is a logical precedence. It precedes even our ability to believe. In other words, we have to be awakened to life before we believe. It's not we believe and not therefore I've been made alive. It's I've been made alive by the operative work of the Holy Spirit, the giver of life, which then unleashes in my own heart and mind uh, the, the ability to believe. I think about this from because I'm on a college campus and, and, I, and, I, and I've got children now who ask philosophically shaped and edgy questions about the faith that, frankly, I never asked as a child. I've thought about this recently. I just, I, I just grew up with this sort of beautifully simplistic faith. I just believed, and I've, and I've never not known what it's like not to believe. That wasn't what you get. I've never known that. Now, now I've had my own sort of moments of incredulity here and there, where I wrestle with this, that, and the other in the faith, as we all do, I assume. But, you know, now I've got kids who have hard sort of philosophical questions and they want to think about the faith and have, have good answers. I, I'm saying all of this to say I've never been good at apologetics, sort of defending the faith. And, and part of that's because of my own story. I've never felt the need of it personally. Right? In other words, I, I believe that belief um, is something that's properly basic to everything else in my life. I don't, I don't, I don't have any stepladder in my own 
experience to get to belief. It's just that's basic. But I'm thinking about this more now, and I'm not good at this. This is not an area that I'm good at. Some of you are good at this. It's just not an area that I'm good at. But I am thinking about these things from a defending of the faith or giving a kind of philosophical account of the faith or at least doing the best we can to give a reasoned account. Not necessarily something that's going to be affirmed uh, with the turn of phrase or the logic by sort of neutral humanity, but to give a kind of reasoned account of the, some of the difficult aspects of our faith. So I'll just say I'm not good at this. Not, it's not an area of strength for me. But I still am 100% committed to this truth. And that is, in our reasoned accounts of the faith, and in our public defense of the faith, there is an infinite gap between proof and persuasion. In other words, even with my kids, like I want to be able to, when, when I've got one in particular, and another one who's starting more, who are going to just raise questions. I want to be able to give them a reasoned and rational account that makes sense within the logic of our own faith structure. But I want to be able to give an account of that. But I recognize that the move from giving them proof um, that's even good proof or reason proof, huh, that makes some sense, to I believe that that's true and it's true for me, that gap is an infinite one that can only be filled by the operative work of the Holy Spirit who is, as our creed says, and we just said it this morning, the giver of life. Um, and and that, that leaves me, I, I, I think, I don't know how you feel about this, that helps me sleep at night. Um, and I tell this to my students at Beeson all the time. You can lose a few debates for Jesus. He can handle it. Because someone's eternal destination is not dependent or determined on your argumentative skills. I mean, that, that's, to me, that's intellectual and theological bondage, right? Rather, we do the best we can. That's why I tell my students the most important character trait of you as a minister and a theologian when it comes to theology, preaching, and reasoned accounts of the faith is responsibility. Because some of you are, I mean, or just have the gift of gab. Some of you don't. Some of you are good at speaking persuasively. Some of you aren't. You have to be responsible with the tools that you are given, recognizing that at the end of the day, it is the Holy Spirit who is the giver of life. Um, and you'll hear these stories about people who will say, and I, I've heard them, and I would never, ever um, challenge someone's testimony. I want to be careful how I say this, because I'm, I'm entering into thin ice here. I've never challenged anyone's testimony. I just listen, thank you, Lord. But I, I know people from my own past who will say things like, I just had, I had philosophical problems with the faith. I didn't like the problem of evil. It's big, too big of a hurdle for me. Or I didn't like, um, I didn't like Trinitarian theology. There's no way that works logically. Or the, or the list goes on and on. And then, at some point, I heard a debate, or I, saw, I read a book, or whatever, and, and, and then I saw that it was reasonable and rational, and then I believed. And I, I've heard that story many, many times. And you know what? I, 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 that is, that is their understanding of their narrative. But I have to tell you, I'm still committed to what I said earlier. Something happened before. But the, the, the move to saying, huh, I'm not sure about that too. I'm, now I believe that's true and I'm putting my faith in that for my eternal security. I believe that's true and true for me. Something Holy Spirit is going on in that moment because He is the only giver of life. He's the giver of life. All right. Now, next phrase. What time is it? Bad news. We're going to do the filioque in five minutes. You ready? Um, so here's 
major schism. That's right. So the next phrase that you have in the creed is, so I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. Now let's think about that last phrase and back into the filioque. And I'll explain that in a second. With the Father, he is worshipped and glorified. You do not have a more robust and profound statement about the the personal character of the Holy Spirit and his divine agency in one phrase. He is worshipped and glorified. Only God is worshipped. Isaiah chapter 45, only God is glorified. So to say that the Holy Spirit is an agent, a to use technical <coughs> theological language, a hypostasis, a persona, the Holy Spirit is not the Son. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. He is a personal agent in the Godhead, and yet, fully God, to make that claim is to say, I think in its fullness, He is worshipped and glorified. That's, that's about as robust a claim as you have about the agency of the Holy Spirit. Now, what about the preceding clause? Who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now, I, I'm, I'm an amateur on this, right? so I'm going to give you a little background, and then we'll, and then we'll move on. The phrase, and the Son, he proceeds from the Father and the Son. That is the phrase in Latin that is it, that we, we identify as the filioque. If I had, is there chalk over here? Oh, yes! <laughs> so, filioque. I, I, if I had to take a Latin quiz right now, I'd get a C- minus at best, okay? Um, but this is how Latin works. Latin will put the conjunction... Quay at the end, with, and we would, and that's the English and. So that's and filio the son. So the quay there is that, that's how that's kind of how Latin operates. It will it will use the conjunction and put quay in and put it at the end of the word. So filio quay is just and the son, <clears throat> and it's a massive controversy to this day. It is. Um, about 800 A.D. in Spain, they began to use and adopt the filioque phrase that was added later, I should say. Initially, the Nicene Creed, Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed said, who proceeds from the Father, not and the Son. And the Son was added in, really, I think they say in Spain, around the 9th century, um, to ward off a certain kind of Arianism that was arising that thought that the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father made him in a subordinate role to the Son and the Father. So there was a kind of anti-Arian, a kind of anti-non-Trinitarian impulse that led to, to this phrase being added. And then it began to be adopted in the West, um, and the Son, and the Son. And this led to the great schism in 1054, I believe, A.D., where the Eastern Church and the Western Church split from one another over this Theological controversy. It's remarkable, isn't it? Um, if you go to the Greek festival downtown um, and, and have the patience to wait in line for it, um, and you do the church tour, this is the one thing I have to say when it comes to marketing, the Eastern Church knows what they're doing, right? Because um, not, not just the food, but you, when you go into the front and you'll see the kind of the, tr the, the, the ecclesiastical tree of the, the genetic tree. Um, you look at the Western Church and all you know the, all these schisms and breaks. And what do they have in the Eastern Church? Like right back to the apostles, right? No, we're, we're so it's, it's a great marketing scheme. Um, 
But the, 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 this, this sort of traces back to the schism of 1054, so that you had the Eastern Church, which was based in Constantinople, and the Western Church, which was based in Rome, they separated from one another. They, to put really the, the edge on it, they anathematized each other over this phrase. And you're like, goodness gracious, is it that important? And, and actually, it is. It's really important. It's, it's not an insignificant matter. So what was the concern <coughs> of the Eastern Church? Well, the concern of the Eastern Church was a couple of matters. Number one, to add and the Son was, they thought, actually to diminish the divine status of the Spirit. That was one thing. The second thing that the Eastern Church thought was, and this is, this is pretty, a pretty interesting thing to think through, if you say that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, do you have double causation in the divine life, which then means, which breaks down Trinitarian logic? That was another concern that they had. Um, so th- there, were some, there were some significant concerns that were going on here from, from the East. Now, what about the West? How do we understand how the West deals with these things? Okay. Well, the West has understood these issues really sort of linked back to Augustine himself. That would say that the Spirit of God um, comes to us from the Father of the Son. And what ends up happening once these once these issues get entrenched in the life of the eastern uh, in the life of the church where east and west divides, then all of a sudden theological arguments go to a sort of, to, sort of to another level. There are those who's in the eastern church, for example, in the medieval period who would argue um, that the father that the father has a has a kind of is the only one that has any agency in sending the spirit, and the son is not involved at all. That becomes a view that that's a kind of extreme eastern view. So what do we do here? Well, I do think we land with the West, right? Even though we recognize, and I think most theologians would recognize, that the move that the Western Church made to do this kind of unilaterally apart from ecumenical consensus was, was probably not a good move. And as if we could move time back, um, we would kind of wish it wouldn't, have, it wouldn't have played out this way. But we can't do that. We are where we are now. And now we have to wrestle with, well, what's the logic of the filioque? Why is it important? And this is more important because it relates to our whole time together over these past how many ever weeks we've been together. Is the logic of the filioque biblical? And I do think the logic of the filioque is biblical because you'll find in the Bible, and I should just say read John's Gospel, but you'll find in the Bible that the Father will send the Spirit You'll find other places where the Son will send the Spirit, or you'll find places where the Father and the Son together are sending of the Spirit. So you'll find both of those. And some of the speed bump or the hurdles that has happened between East and West on this is <coughs> a matter of language and linguistics. This is own sort of fascinating conversation. But in the Eastern Church, the term procession, proceed, was a technical theological term. The Son is generated from the Father. That's the language that you use about the Son. He's eternally generated from the Father. Where the Spirit eternally precedes from the Father. So the language of procession in the East has a technical vocabulary that's linked to it. Whereas in the West, the language of procession never had that technical vocabulary that was linked to it. Um, To proceed wasn't necessarily a technical term. It was another term just for sending out. So the Father can send out the Spirit, and the Son can send out the Spirit. And if you read the farewell discourse in John 14, 15, and 16, you can't get past a paragraph 
without Jesus saying, in effect, in some way, I will send the Spirit to you. I will send my Spirit to you, who will remind you of what I've said. Jesus goes so far as to say, and I, I, you have to wrestle to get our minds around this. Jesus went so far as to say this, when I send the Spirit to you, it will be better for you when I'm gone that you have the Spirit, because you will do greater works than these. Remarkable statement about the effective power of the Spirit. The Spirit comes into the life of the church to remind the church of the words and the person of Jesus Christ and to link our, our lives to, the, to Jesus in the Spirit's teaching office. He's teaching us in that way. So you say, well, that seems, that seems so obvious um, to sort of just read the biblical narrative right off the level of, the, of its surface reality and say, of course the Father can send the Spirit and the Son can send the Spirit. What's the issue? <clears throat> well, the issue is this one, and this is probably the larger theological matter. The Eastern Church begins to make a kind of division between the ways in which the Son and Spirit and Father relationship are presented in the biblical narratives and God's life actually in Himself. Now, let me say, this is, this is an important point, I'm, and I'll say it one more time. A division begins to creep in by preserving, or at least leaning against the filioque. A division begins to surface about uh, making a distinction between the way in which God's own triune life is presented in the biblical narrative and how God's triune life actually is in himself. And that's a move that, frankly, the Western church has resisted from the beginning in ways that I think are rather important. Um, God's eternal life, what, what the technical terminology is, the processions of God's eternal life where the Father uh, begets the Son who then spirates the Spirit, that eternal life of God is organically linked and related to the ways in which God reveals Himself in His mission to the world. And so I think we're, we keep those as distinct, but we never would drive a wedge between those two. And there's the danger, I think, in dropping the filioque that begins to at least possibly drive a wedge between those two. Now, I should say, 20th century Orthodox Eastern thinkers are very good on this subject. They, they, there's a lot, I think, of ecumenical harmony when it comes to substance about the Spirit and the Father and the Son. I should say that, and in fairness, but just to recognize what some of the hurdles are. Okay, now, that was fun. Um, I want to say... Uh, three more things, maybe even seven, and then I'll let you go. So what, what, what do we take from this? What do we take from this? Number one, the Son sends His Spirit. Why does the Son send His Spirit? To bring to mind that which Jesus taught and what Jesus did and to be the ongoing teacher in the life of the church. I don't know if you think about it this way, but the Holy Spirit's particular function in the life of the church is to teach. And it's the church that's the social context where the Holy Spirit does His teaching. Related to that is another point that I think is so important. Now, this is crucial. This is very reformational, very adventy here. We never get the Word of God without the Spirit of God. Word of God and Spirit. Um, this is something I really emphasize in my teaching at, at Beeson, to let students know, you're, you're, you're taking Hebrew right now. I mean, you're working so hard in this class. 
<clears throat> parsing verbs, trying to learn to read from right to left. I mean, all the complicated stuff that goes along with learning a language. Why? So that you can be better readers of God's Word. But this is what I tell them again and again. But do remember, you can never make the Bible happen. You're a servant of the Word. All of these tools that you're learning are in service to the teaching office of the Spirit and the life of the church. Because for the Bible to happen... And what, what do I mean when I say the Bible happening? What I mean is, Jesus Christ, His person and work, made present in our lives in a saving and redeeming way. I mean, that's a powerful thing to think about what the Bible actually offers as a means of grace. The saving presence of Jesus, His person and work, in our life and midst by the faithful teaching and reading and proclamation and study of His Word. But for that to happen, the Holy Spirit must be operative. So we don't get the Word of God without the Spirit of God. And to really kind of sort of border on what might sound initially heretical, I'll tell my students this too. I guess I'm telling you as well. I'll tell them, you do know that without the operative work of the Spirit of God, the Bible is black words on a white page. It's the Spirit of God that illumines and inspires this text to be what it is in the very life of God. No, no, no Spirit, no Word. But the reverse is equally true. No word, no spirit. And this, this is the area that I think is really important in, in the life of the church to recognize that the Spirit's particular function, if we believe the filioque, is linked organically to the life and work of the Son. When we begin to heist the, spirit of, uh, the Holy Spirit off into its own sort of segmented quarter, um, apart from the means of grace in God's church, namely the Word and the sacrament. When we start doing that, and we put the Holy Spirit over here in a category that's separated from that, I think we've run into real dangers and hurdles. Now, I'll say this, and then, and then I'll close. I do not mean to in any way diminish the extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit of God around the world. I've said this to you all before, I'll say it again. I remember hearing a Southern Baptist missionary, we're talking about really conservative in their views of the charismatic gifts. A conservative Southern Baptist missionary said he had never met a Muslim convert in the, in the, in the, um, in the East. He had never met a Muslim convert who was not converted, who did not have some dream where Jesus appeared to him or her. So God can do remarkable things, right? So the extraordinary things. But I also think we need to recognize and affirm, as our Articles of Religion affirm, that God gives himself to us, though, in ordinary means. The means of grace, the preaching of the word, and the celebration of the sacrament. Apparently there was a seminary in our country where they would have a kind of, they'd have chapel, and then they'd preach, and they'd, celebrate this, the Eucharist together as a, as a theological community. And, and then afterward, they would do something like, and now, you know, what's the Holy Spirit teaching you? And I, I get it. I get it. But I, there was a theologian, I, I think very highly of this man. He said, I've always wondered about that. It's as if we finished the church service and we want to say, and now, and now for the real stuff. Right. Um, as if, and he said, I want to just kind of remind people, the Holy Spirit's been already pretty generous today. You know, we've got the Word, we've got the sacrament, we've got a reminder of who we are in Him, that that's, that's a pretty generous thing that the Spirit has already given to us. So again, not downplaying the extraordinary, but emphasizing if the filioque is right, and we never separate the works of God from the persons of God, 
we never separate the Spirit of God from the life of the Father and the Son, if we never do that, then we have to see the Spirit's work as especially tethered to the making present of the redemptive and good news of Jesus Christ that comes to us in the Word and the Sacrament. And one final thing, and then I'm done. Oh, that was it. (laughs) I want to talk about prophecy, Catholicity, um, baptism, and the resurrection of the dead. Um, But we'll have to do that another time. Okay, let me pray and I'll let you go. Lord, thank you so much for um, the, the gift of your Holy Spirit. Um, who gives us life. And Lord, for all the people that we love in this world, and all the people that we're scared about in this world, all the people that our hearts are heavy for in this world, Lord, we have to trust that you are the one and the only one who can give life, that can breathe into things that are dead and make them alive again. And we know that you do that by making present Jesus Christ in our midst. So Lord, let us have a bigger view of you and the, and, and the gifts that you have given us in the preaching and teaching of your word and in the, in the liturgical sacramental life of our, of our worship together. Feed our hungry souls, we pray, and teach our empty minds, we pray, by your grace. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.